Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Raven from Kinexus, and welcome to the webinar, Ask Docs Anything About COVID-19. Again, we are joined again by Dr. Greg Jacobson and Dr. Mason Malore. And with that, we're going to really just jump right into questions. We had questions submitted in advance. So first question is both sort of high level and then it gets into detail. Um, how likely will this be widespread across the United States? What's the best way to protect ourselves? And then when it comes to masks, there's no consensus yet about wearing a mask in public. What's your take on this? I'm happy to jump in and, and then I'll pass it off to Mason. First of all, there is a pretty good size echo. Oh, the echo went away. Um, so I, I think the the cat's out of the bag on on with how extensive the virus is going to be in in the U.S. and obviously even the world. So I think there's zero chance this is not going to be a widespread illness. It's going to affect every large city, I think small city, and even um, a rural area in the United States. The the biggest factor that we have that we all individually control our destiny is how severe the spike of cases are going to be and how concentrated are they going to be. And that we have been referring to as flattening the curve. And so um, that's all I'll say there. And, and, and Dr. Mueller can, can um, expand on that. From my side of things, there's really two major things that we can do to individually protect ourselves. One, decrease the number of interactions with other humans that you can have. So what I mean by that is direct interaction or even indirect interaction. So the, the mantra that we've all been now hearing is stay home, save lives. That's basically what that means. Only go out if something's absolutely essential. When we do go out, we need to not touch our face. We need to wash our hands frequently. The best way to not touch your face is to put something on your face so you're not touching it. It just so happens that when you do wear a non-medical mask, you're going to decrease the amount of virus that you can inhale because some of that virus, is if you were to be coughed on or sneezed on or someone gets within six feet of you and starts talking to you, it's going to decrease the amount of virus, if they have it, that they are going to spew to you. And then I think the other important piece of information is Prior to you having symptoms of the infection, there appears to be about a one or two day period where you're spreading the virus. So you're also wearing a mask in case you're in that time frame that you're decreasing the amount of virus that you're putting out there in the world. And we can talk a little bit about proper mask wearing, donning and doffing of a mask in a second. But before we get too far off that, Mason, do you want to expand upon any of those concepts? Yeah. Um I think the idea that if it's going to be right, widespread or not, as it, like we were just talking about here, it's uh, already spread. There's no stopping it at this point. Um, as far as how to protect ourselves, you're right. I mean, it's just um, I think we can lull ourselves a little bit into a sense of false sense of security, um, especially. I mean, right now, I don't think anybody's feeling very secure when they're looking at mortality rates uh, and cases going up now, people dying of this year, but as we get to a point at some point in the future where it starts to become a little bit less, I think that's where it's going to take a lot of us to uh, decide, hey, how, you know, when can we start relaxing? And we're going to get into that later. I know, Greg, you that's called the dance at that point. But um, as far as the mask uh, question, um, I delineate based on are you at home 
And if you're at home, you don't have to wear a mask. It's not going to really help anything. Or are you not at home? And if you're not at home, um, then you really should be wearing a mask if you are in a building, in an enclosed space of some kind. Uh, I think I don't see uh, much of a help for masks if you're just taking a walk outside um, and you're maintaining your personal space um, like you should. Um, but then again, it's not going to hurt. So I think at the end of the day, uh, if you know you're going to walk outside and maybe stop inside of a, you know, the neighborhood corner store to get a gallon of milk, well, then you probably need to be wearing your mask during that time. There was, uh, I think, a related, you know, fairly detailed question. I think you've already answered, but just to confirm, someone asked, is it safe to work from home on an outdoor patio and would it be necessary to wear a mask? Yeah, I mean, just to directly answer that, it is 100% safe to work at home on an outdoor patio. And assuming your outdoor patio doesn't have anyone else on it, then you, there's no, no value whatsoever in wearing a mask. So there's another question here to ask, you know, do we really need to assume that everyone has this? Is that true, even if we're staying at home and having groceries delivered to us, or if I'm dropping food off at my... Uh, to my dad, you know, I try to stay away from him and, and don't touch him. What, what are your thoughts in general and about scenarios like those? I, I, I tell my patients, seconds. yeah. Um, so what I'm telling my patients is the just like what we said, I mean, the less you have to interact with anybody, the better. Um, so if think about your father, if your father is in his 60s and has COPD, you probably don't want to talk to him or even go in the house. If, you know, if you can leave the groceries on the front step and wave through the window, that's the best way, you know, um, because that you're any little bit you can do to prevent that. All it takes is, you know, all you have to do is, is one time be able to transmit enough of that virus, then he has it, you know? So I would say, um, now if your dad is staying in the, the house with you and you're having to live in the same house, Honestly, at that point, you're all in the same environment anyway, you know? Yeah, I, I think you could if you were in a situation where you were living with someone that was high risk. And then that person, I think the more they would stay in their room, and then if they come out, they're wearing a mask. Um, the more of those kinds of things that you can do, the better. This isn't you know, completely black and white. There's this huge area of gray that really you're just trying to decrease the number of interactions you could have where you could get the virus. So the way I, I think of things and the way I'm explaining things to people so they can kind of get into the infectious disease mindset or the keep things sterile mindset. I mean, we're not talking about sterility, but all the concepts of being in an operating room and, and understanding what's what's considered sterile and what's not considered sterile apply to this. So I think of it as things that are contaminated and things that are not contaminated. So to me, my house and me are areas that are not contaminated and then the rest of the world is contaminated. So how is that applying to dropping off food from, you know, if someone drops off food or drop, delivers your groceries, I would consider whatever is being dropped off is contaminated. And so then I would just develop a process where if I touch that stuff, now my hands are contaminated, right? So then I want to wipe those things off and put them in a non-contaminated place. And then while I'm doing that, I would probably be wearing a mask because I don't want to accidentally, while I have contaminated hands, touch my face. And so then I would go piece by piece decontaminating it. Then I would take the, 
the bag that it came in and throw that away, consider that contaminated, consider everything that I just cleaned not contaminated. So then I would go wash my hands appropriately, and now my hands are decontaminated. So that same kind of process can be applied to a mask. So as soon as you put the mask on and then you go interact in the grocery store, your hands are not contaminated. Just keep consider them to have virus on them and then realize that you probably are going to touch that mask at some point in the store without even realizing that you're going to do it. So then when you're done with the store and you're walking out, you're cleaning your hands really well. You are taking the mask off with the back part of it, the loops or however it's being attached to your head. Um, I'm just putting the mask on the passenger um, floor because that's as far away as I can get it. And I just leave it there. And um, and then I'm washing my hands. So anytime you touch the mask, wash your hands with some hand sanitizer. That's the way you go from kind of being contaminated to decontaminating. Now, when you're at home, all the bags and everything I would consider contaminated. So then I would have the process of getting those decontaminated and, and go from there. And so that's that's the approach I would take while we're in the hammer phase, as we're learning more from science and as we're learning more about this virus, those recommendations are certainly, I mean, I'd be surprised if that's 100% correct. It's either gonna most likely be that we can re relax some of these things, but it may end up being that we learn that we, we need to make those things even more stringent. So we'll just, time will tell. There's um, a couple of follow-up questions. Um, you know, I think it's a short answer to this one. Is it safe to go running outdoors without a mask as long as I maintain at least six feet away from everyone? Definitely. Definitely. Um, do you feel comfortable giving um, a timeline, a number of days for when things should not be touched without being cleaned, library books, for example? Uh, packages might be another thing like that. That goes back to, if you look at the uh, um, the lifespan of the virus on various uh, surfaces. Um, so library book, for instance, um, you know, if it's a lot of library books have that protective, if it's from the public library, have that little uh, plastic layer on the outside. It's perfect. And all you have to do is take that library book and spray it down, you know, like you would or wipe it down or something. Be on the safe side. But to be honest with you, that's overkill, probably. Um, when it comes to how long a virus is able to maintain its actual ability to infect you on even a plastic surface, you're talking 72 hours, you know. Um, if it's a paper surface, like, you know, picked up a bag of tacos, uh, which you know, probably shouldn't do, uh, should, probably should make it at home, but let's say you did, um, then that they're saying that, you know, on the bag itself is a matter of hours that it can do that. But you're touching that bag right after someone else touches it too. So uh, I think you just got to, you know, be, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, Greg, how you said it's like contaminated, not contaminated, just treating it like, hey, it's probably just assume it's contaminated and try to extricate out the food in a, the most non-contaminated way you can. But then again, that was prepared by somebody. So again, you're kind of stuck. Wait, a couple of people ask um, a different version of the same question. Um, how or how fast or does it does do the germs, the virus at all, move across our bodies? Is there any migration? For example, if I scratch my forehead, is there any germ migration toward our nose, eyes, or mouth? Um, in general, how migratory are is the virus across our bodies? I, I I don't know of any evidence that says the, the virus has any ability to, to migrate. Are you familiar with anything, Mason? I mean, I Definitely don't think not. it has any. There's, 
it doesn't have yeah. the structure to do it. So you look, you're, right. you move it. That's how it works. Right, right. So it's if you're if you touch your forehead and you have virus on your forehead, then it's not going to infect you. The issue is is that you're going to touch your forehead and then you're going to touch your mouth or your nose, and then as soon as you get into that that moist mucous membrane area, then you know you're licking your lips or you inhale. So then you that's how you're transporting it and getting it inside. But if you scratch your forehead, it probably it, it wouldn't fall and become airborne. It's so. I guess. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have legs and it's not like, you know, or like cilia or like little hair like projections and moving its way um, around. I mean, this is a, I mean, viruses are literally, you know, little pieces of RNA or DNA. So, you know, the genetic material encapsulated by some protein, that's, that's all they are. They're, they're simpler than bacteria. You know, bacteria are pretty simple um, as a, as a, as an organism. Yeah. Yes. So I have a couple questions about being away from others or being quarantined. One question, if you stay at home for 14 days, visiting no stores, only going for walks alone, could you go visit a highly susceptible family member who needs help? I mean, I would answer this if you are 100% certain that you've had 0% chance of encountering the virus, then the best data we have right now is that 14 days is the outer limit that you can have the infection and um, not have the the illness, if you will, you know, the, the incubation period. So um, I would I would say, yes, I would probably argue I have a hard time believing that you could really isolate completely for 14 days. So then I would balance that with how good have you isolated versus how important is it to see the person versus how susceptible is the person if they get the illness. What are your thoughts, Mason? Yeah, I think it's just a, a, a risk reward uh, analysis that you're talking about. So, I mean, there are so many ways to, to, if you're just talking about, you know, you miss them and you want to see them, that's really what FaceTime or Zoom or any of these other things are kind of here for. Um, but if there is something you have to, some sort of service that you have to provide, you know, for a, a parent maybe or something. Um, but I, Again, I think it, it really boils down to, yeah, sure, you're probably going to be okay if you're doing everything right, but you just have you, you have no way of controlling every single variable in that situation, and who knows what they're doing. So yeah, I'd say the other question you have to ask yourself is, um, you know, you might pick up something on there and that you're then transmitting around. So, like, from a population standpoint, the less you interact with another person, the better at the end of the day. A related question. I've been in self-quarantine for three weeks since my daughter and I got back from Kentucky, where there were a couple of reported cases. Are we clear now? And I, I guess there's a question of what does that mean, being clear? If they, what, what are your thoughts? I think you have to define what clear is. So if you're, are we clear to go to the movie theater? No. <laughs> uh, you know, like there are certain behaviors that we've all said we're going to hold off on doing, you know. But if if you mean by are we clear to um, practice walking around the neighborhood and maintaining six feet of distance between other people and stuff like that, then sure, I'd say so. Uh, three weeks is a good amount there. I mean, the, yeah, am, I, I think, am I clear in terms of have I likely not contracted it? But, but it is not part of the challenge. Being asymptomatic doesn't mean you don't have it, right? Right. Yeah, well, 
I think that's how I interpreted the question. Are they clear from the chance that they have the infection? And the answer to that is if they've been 100% isolated, then, then yes, all the best science says that they will have a 0% chance of getting the infection. Um, keeping in mind that you, you're absolutely right, Mark, they, they may have had a completely asymptomatic, asymptomatic manifestation of the illness. So, I mean, they, they might get their, their antibodies tested um, at some point and they might be surprised to find out that they in fact did have the illness at one point. That's, that's why this is a, a little bit of the perfect storm, um, unfortunately. I mean, viruses that are always extremely severe and always kill people um, very quickly are going like, you know, Ebola. <laughs> We've had a lot of Ebola outbreaks. None of them have spread widely. Um, and, and so this is one of these illnesses. This is a virus that has a, a bunch of mild manifestations, but it also has this pretty significant portion of the population that, that have very severe manifestations of this illness. And so it's kind of, um, it's a perfect storm. So another question, how many strains of coronavirus are circulating the globe during this pandemic? Um, I'll take that one, Greg. Uh, so right now we don't know that there's, there may be multiple strains uh, in terms of maybe some particular mutation setting it apart. But as it stands right now, there's not been anything to suggest that it changes its behavior or characteristics enough to change what we do about strain A versus strain B. Yeah, I mean, the, the coronavirus is a whole family of viruses. And from what I've learned about coronaviruses in the last uh, few weeks, because really in med school, you just learn that, oh, yeah, there's, there's these viruses called coronaviruses. They call a common cold. Very little, very little has really been done with understanding what they do. I echo again. I apologize. So there's essentially four strains of coronavirus that cause the common cold. And now there's SARS, which is, you know, the, the fifth strain that causes um causes obviously a more severe illness. And then this is the, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, my understanding is there are you know, several hundred mutations to this virus, but they are not meaningful. They're not changing the way the virus looks or any of its little projections or anything. So um, that's actually really comforting news that so far with as many infections, the virologists, people that study viruses, don't think that it has mutated in a meaningful way. Um, and by meaningful, that it's going to create a different kind of illness in a human. So that's, um, I think that's a great piece of news. There was um, another part of the question I think it might be worth clarifying. When we hear coronavirus and COVID-19, COVID-19 is the disease that's caused by this coronavirus, correct? Yeah, if that's the well, vernacular. Yeah. Go ahead, Mason. I was going to say uh, the way I understand it is COVID-19 is the novel virus that's causing the illness. So it's the COVID-19 is the exact, you know, remember saying the coronavirus is a huge family um, of different viruses. And COVID-19 is the particular virus that's causing all of this that we're seeing right now in terms of, you know, the infections and the fatality rate. So. 
I think there is a little bit of a distinction between like the name of the virus, meaning COVID-19, and there's a lot of different names out there for this, and we're not going to necessarily get into that. But for sake of argument, COVID-19 is what is causing then this kind of uh, illness that goes everywhere from asymptomatic all the way to being placed on a ventilator. Okay, thanks. There are a couple questions here um, along the lines of, is it possible to have reinfections or do people become immune to this virus after they've been exposed to it? I'm happy to tackle that. So the short answer is we don't know. We are very hopeful that it will act like many other viruses do, where when we get a virus or a bacteria or any other pathogen, anything that causes an infectious disease, um, our body's immune system will create something that looks a lot like a key or a kind of this binding thing to whatever it is. So we'll just say this, this, um, this virus. And when it binds to it, it kind of coats it and it makes it um, either kills it or breaks it open or makes it inert where it's not interacting with our, our body. It takes our body about you know seven to 14 days to make a new antibody or a new key, if you will. So we believe that you will have some immunity. Some, sometimes our body will make um, an antibody for its entire life. And then sometimes your body will make an antibody and it won't last as long. And that kind of is the the easiest way to conceptualize why some things you will have some immunity for maybe a month or a year or a couple of years. And sometimes um, you'll have an immunity for life and you'll never be able to get that disease again. So we don't know exactly how this coronavirus is going to act, but I think the best guess is that it will confer some immunity for some period of time. So theoretically, you shouldn't be able to get the illness kind of back to back. The other, the other thing that's really um, kind of leaning us towards that thought process is, is, is that people that have had the illness were able to extract the, um, the antibody from. So the, the specific virus and we're creating an antibody. So we're able to get that antibody from humans that have had the illness. And we're then able to inject that antibody into people that are currently have, having the illness. So you're going to learn a lot about, um, about convalescence of the disease and, and convalescent therapy. And the biggest news, it, it probably, uh, I think the, one of the biggest news on the medical front is in the last week, that um, medical journal JAMA put out a paper. Now it only has five patients, so we can't extrapolate a lot, but it's it's comforting that these five patients appear to do better once they got the convalescent serum from a person that had the illness. And so I think we're gonna learn a lot more about that. It's just one of the examples of why the longer you can go personally and not get the infection, the better because we are learning more and more and more about this disease. Um, I'll give one other example, um, listening to a bunch of really smart ER docs and intensive care doctors on the front lines in New York and in California where they're seeing the most cases. They're just in this two week timeframe are changing their approach to how they're setting the ventilator settings once you go on a ventilator 
and they're already even changing the approach of when they believe you need to go on a ventilator. So that's just two weeks that they're already starting to learn about this illness um, in the United States. So you can imagine what the medical community is going to do in you know, the next two months from the standpoint of really understanding. We talk about, you hear say, doctors like, oh, we give supportive care. You know? Well, supportive care can mean a lot of different things, and there might be the best ways, and, and there might be you know, um, not as good of ways to give that type of care. You know, for example, you know, ibuprofen would be supportive care, but you know, there's some data out that says you know, ibuprofen may not be the best medication for this illness. So there's just going to be more and more and more of that. And the longer we can go and not get the illness, the more we'll be able to fight the illness if and when we get it with the, all the advancements that are going to happen. Okay, we have another question. You know, we, we all see a lot of things on social media, but what's the best place to go if we want to go confirm what information is good or, or bad? It's hard to keep up. Um, it's hard to determine who's really setting standards for best practices with all of this. I'm happy to jump in there. I'm biased. We are putting a ton of information out on the Kinexus blog. I'm writing a email every day to my network which includes, you know, several hundred, maybe three or four hundred email addresses now. And we are putting those emails on the next blog. We can certainly share. You want to share that? Is that easy to share? Um, and, and so I am referencing articles that I think are meaningful. Um, and two days ago, I think I did an email that just did a situational analysis of the last two weeks. So if you want to kind of go through all of what I think there's probably about 20 pieces of information that I think are, are meaningful right now to, to make sure you understand. Um, I have found that the New York Times is a great um, non-medical source, and I found that um, the Atlantic seems to be writing really good articles. And uh, so you kind of immediately, when I start reading an article, I, I start realizing, oh, is there is, is this article have depth, or is this just kind of a surface article talking about you know, things that may not matter um, in 24 hours. Um, from a medical standpoint, our, and I'm sure internal medicine has similar things, but in emergency medicine, there's there's companies and put on by ER doctors that are totally geared toward medical education. So one of the ones I use is MRAP, and they are putting out weekly podcast, webinary type of situations where they get together and a couple of infectious disease docs, a couple um, intensivists, a couple ER docs, uh, a couple cardiologists. There's a lot of cardiac manifestations of this illness that we're starting to learn about now. And, um, and they're synthesizing all the literature coming out and kind of making it more consumable for the medical community. Um, so those are probably kind of my approach. Mason, what's been your approach? Uh, pretty similar. Um, I, uh, I definitely approach with a lot of skepticism, anything that's kind of in a news agency of any kind. Uh, usually they have something they're trying to, um, an angle, if you will. Um, so I like to go to places that don't have an opinion really as much about, they're just trying to give me data. And so um, that would be just like what you're talking about. I think the physician community has been doing a pretty good job of uh, having these little forums with, uh, on various uh, social media platforms that actually has, you know, been pretty good. Um, and about like, you know, people that are you know, on the front lines talking about, wow, well, we adjusted this fin setting or, you know, whatever. And this, that's been helpful for me. 
uh, to see. As far as like if I were uh, a non-physician looking for a reliable place to get this information, um, this good information would be I actually really like the blog posts that you guys have been posting on Kinexus. I think that that's been very helpful. Um, and then if you just go to places like, um, you know, the, the kind of the bigger entities, uh, CDC, things like that, um, might be a little bit more dry. But I mean, I think that that's probably your most reliable place. Reliable. I, I did put a link in, oh, and Greg also put it there. There's a couple different links. One is a general resources page. The first link there is a separate page we uh, maintain with um, all sorts of different external resources. Then there's the blog post and there's Greg's uh, emails uh, there. I think the only place or the only topic that I'm disappointed in the CDC and I understand that they have a, a lot of stuff going on with this recommendation, but uh, I think if you talk to physicians personally, we are all of the opinion that wearing a barrier on your face is only going to be a good thing to do. And so um, I know they have, I, I know the CDC hasn't formally come out recommending that, but um, if you go to those links, my, my last email, uh, I think I've had now two or three emails um, Friday, Monday, and then yesterday's email were all showing the data and the reasoning behind why we should all be wearing masks because it will essentially make the hammer phase, the total lockdown phase of this more effective. And the more effective we can be in the hammer phase, the quicker we can get to the less restriction phase or the dance phase where we can start getting our lives back to a normal um kind of uh, cadence. So the the longer we do the hammer phase, meaning the less well we do it as a as a population, the longer it's going to have to last. It's kind of like if you can study really, really hard for one hour, that's sometimes better than kind of, you know, kind of studying for a test for three hours. You, you sometimes will do better just by really focusing. That's That's what I think we need to be getting to on the hammer phase of the country. You've touched on some of this a little bit, maybe if you can just go ahead and, and, and answer about the risks. Should we be concerned about uh, contracting this at grocery stores? And then secondly, do I really have to decontaminate everything? If you can just kind of give a quick summary in response to that. Jason? Yeah, um, I think grocery stores are the probably most likely place you're going to get exposed. Everybody has to go there. Um, you have a lot of different services. People are, you know, picking something off the shelf, examining it, putting it back on the shelf. You know, you hope they're doing less of that. But um, so, yeah, I think that's if, you know, if you are doing everything right, you're still having to go get groceries probably. And so I think that uh, you really have to exercise caution there. I would I don't think anything is too ridiculous to do. I mean, wear a mask. Uh, gloves, they have been trying to figure out if gloves are really useful or not in a place like a I don't think you can really tell. I, I wouldn't tell you not to. Let's put it that way. Um, and then um, as far as other things, wiping everything down um, kind of depends on what the surface is. I think we talked to the last one about, you know, Amazon packages. If you just kind of leave them out for a day, then you don't have to worry about wiping it down. Uh, but if you're, you know, get have a takeout bag from, you know, a plastic bag from HEB or something, yeah, you probably want to treat that like it's contaminated um, and either dispose of it in a way that keeps you from touching it or wipe it down. 
Two comments. One from a from a glove standpoint, I agree. I don't think I would tell you not to wear a glove, but I'm certainly not going to tell you to wear a glove because the you can't get the virus from just touching a surface with a virus and leaving it on your hands. The only way you're going to get the virus in that case is by then touching your your face. So if you're going to the grocery store and you're wearing a mask, I'm not advising you to wear gloves because all you need to do is frequently wash your hands and certainly wash it after you touch the last thing and, and certainly wash them as you, you know, doff the, the, the mask or take off your mask. So and I think that's kind of the thought process there. The other thing that we didn't mention with the food delivery is um, the virus is really sensitive to heat. So if you're ordering up hot food, you can just, you can, you know, be the person that's going to get contaminated, so to speak. And then maybe your partner or your wife, husband, whatever, can be the person that can literally just scoop out the hot food from the container and then just throw the container away and then wash your hands. That might just be the easiest way versus trying to like wipe off these containers and whatnot. Um, so just another thought, I would certainly be leaving out all of the non-perishable things. There is zero reason to bring those into your house unless you're like you know, starving to death. Just let those sit outside in your garage or out on the porch for a few days and let all the virus degrade. Um, there's just, there's no reason to mess with that in my opinion. So yeah, that's how we're dealing with mail. We're just taking it out and letting it sit for a day and, and then kind of sorting through it, you know, a day or two later. It's, it seems to be the easiest thing to do. So. There's a question about, this might be hard to answer, depending, you know, depending on where the person is, but what are the requirements right now to get tested? And what do you recommend we tell our employers if we get sick, but we can't get tested because the symptoms are mild, but they're, uh, they still, they're still sick enough to not want to work? Uh, I think it's going to be on a, a, a region by region area. Uh, I, right now, I, my understanding is that we don't have a lot of testing in Travis County. We're in Austin, Texas. So I think trying to get testing is going to be difficult. And the testing that we are doing are for patients that are um, getting admitted to the hospital and for healthcare workers. Those are going to be populations that are going to need testing um, much quicker. Uh, my opinion, and I think I that would be the medical um, opinion, would be that if you feel like you have a cold, then you should just figure you have COVID-19 illness and you should um, not go into work. Um, the, the approach, so that's, that's if you're symptomatic, the approach is if you interacted with someone who is a known positive, ultimately becomes a known positive, then I think if you take all the known precautions that we're talking about when you go into work, which it would have to be an essential job, right? Um, and hopefully the work, um, for example, a, a, a good friend and he, he, work, he runs and, and basically like an internet sales company. And so what they've done is they've done a lot of measures in their warehouse. So their business does not have to close and they're able to safely transact in business. They've rearranged the workstation so people are staying away from each other. They've gone into shifts. So there's half the number of people there. People are wearing masks. They're taking temperatures at the beginning of a shift um, when they walk in. So there's gonna be safe ways to conduct business um, as if your business is deemed essential. And um, I, I would I would hope by now that your employer would, 
would recognize that, hey, I'm telling you, I have a I have a upper respiratory infection, whether it's mild or not mild. I think in the pandemic time frame, you would just have to consider that to be COVID-19 illness. I agree, um, especially, you know, I have an internal medicine office. And so we've we have to exercise a lot of extra precaution. And so we've been maintaining space inside the office, um, all of our employees, but then also do a, um, a test um, at least once a shift where we're checking temps and asking the questionnaire. But then anybody that is, you know, potentially exposed or has symptoms, we, we have a very strict policy, don't come in, you know? And I think this is where the onus is a little bit on the employers to make it easier for their um, employees to stay home. Um, I think where you're getting into a lot of problems, you kind of see it lately here with the Amazon thing we were talking about a little while ago and some other places where people feel obligated to come into work because they need the money. You know, and, and I, I think if you can remove that barrier as much as you can as an employer, the better off we're going to be. Um, so I've told all my employees, like, listen, I'd rather pay you to work from home than, you know, pay you to come here and give us all coronavirus. OK. Um, another question. Is it true? that a lot of warm, hot liquids would be a good safeguard. What about vitamins like C or D3? Um, I, from I, my opinion, yeah, I mean, I kind of get this all the time. and <clears throat> uh, There's not been anything to definitively say that a certain vitamin helps you. I think in general, the healthier you are. Um, in other words, uh, yeah, get plenty of sleep drink, you know, things that uh, make you relax so you can get that sleep that night. Um, exercise. Uh, certainly, there's nothing wrong with any of the vitamins. We have definitely haven't seen anything to say a certain vitamin makes you more likely to get, you know, COVID-19. So for sure, um, I would go ahead and do it. Um, but I think a lot of people that are looking to a certain supplement or vitamin as the answer, you know, right now, there's just not anything to say that that's the case that we know of so far. That, that's that would be the only thing that I think would be different that I would like to add is that um, well it's not different it's just in addition to from what Mason said is on our resource page I think one of the last links is a pretty well written article that goes through kind of all the natural homeopathic treatments and a little bit of the science behind any of those um, I think you know melatonin is one of those things that's been I've, I've read a little bit about the way I would look at it is that those aren't causing harm and they might be beneficial. So I'm not going to recommend someone not take it, but um, as a medical professional, I'm not going to recommend someone to take it. I will definitely recommend, and my team has called me out on this this week, that getting eight hours of sleep a night is the best thing you can do for your health. And so I committed to everybody that I was going to get that last night. And I feel great that I did that. So um, the studies are completely um, unambiguous. I mean, they are, there's tons and tons of literature that your immune system works way better when you get eight hours of sleep. Um, there's a, a great book that I've, I've mentioned before, um, which is called Why We Sleep. I'm blanking on the author's name. I'll bet Mark can help me out here. But um, one of the entire chapters is devoted to the immune system and uh, how well the immune system um, reacts to sleep. And if you don't get enough sleep or you have just, just 
get your eight hours. If you want to know more, go read that book. Why we Matthew sleep. Walker. Thank you, Matthew Walker. It's really, it's it was a fascinating read or listen to. There's a follow-up question here. What about steering wheels or other surfaces in your vehicle? How long would germs remain on the door handle, the push button to start it, the shifter, things like that? Yeah, plan on it being 24 to 72 hours. So, you know, um, I was that one video that, I, Greg, I think you sent it to me. It was the link to how they're doing kind of practical mitigation issues in China. And they were just talking about how um, they're kind of treating it like a contamination versus not contaminated. Uh, so like in elevators, they had a box of tissue that the guy like said, look, I just pull this tissue out and I push the button with it and things. So I mean, in your own car, if you're the only person driving it, then you probably don't need to worry about it. But if you're sharing a vehicle um, between multiple family members, then yeah, I mean, but again, though, if you're already back in the house with the family members, too, I, mean, I don't know how much you're really helping yourself in that situation. But um, but the same concept applies to other surfaces that you might come into contact with, maybe not your car, but door handles on um, businesses or other homes or uh, things like that. For sure, uh, you need to treat it, you know, like you would as if it's contaminated. I'll add to that. I don't know if this question originates from a, um, a company that I utilize here in Austin called New Wash, where they um, come to your house or your work and, and clean the car. And I spoke with the CEO of that company on, you know, my thoughts of how could you safely run this company in the COVID era? For one, we're in a stay at home order. So I, I can't imagine keeping your car cleaned is considered an essential um, operation, but I'll leave that to the authorities into th that company. But from the standpoint of like, how could you do this medically safe? I think if, um, if the car was clean and then you let the car sit for, you know, two, three days, I think you're, you're good. Um, I think if the people that are cleaning the car are um, wearing a mask are probably wearing gloves um, and taking off those gloves, you know, putting them on and then taking them off right away. That will help almost treating it like a medical procedure, if you will. Um, that will certainly help as well. But if you're the only person in the car, it, it's an irrelevant point because you, you either brought it in the car and you have it or, or not. I mean, this, the virus doesn't, um, it's not spontaneous coming out of thin air. It's, it has to be placed there. So the easiest thing would be to only use a car that you're using or someone in your isolation group is using, if that makes sense. So another question here, um, if you've got a patient at home who does need to be isolated um, on their own, and I've read about like, you know, you've got to have your own bedroom and your own part of the house ideally, but what if you've only got one bathroom in the home, what, what would you do? I think that's just a matter of cleaning. So I think I would probably try to think through, I mean, there's going to, you're really using the bathroom for two main reasons, right? If you're evacuating, then hopefully you're not touching anything other than the handle on the toilet and toilet paper, and you're washing your hands afterwards. If you're using it for bathing, then you're going to touch a whole bunch of other things. But I think if you are, when you are coming into the bathroom and you know that the COVID positive person has been in there before you, I would treat that as if you're going into a grocery store. 
um, and I would treat that room as contaminated. Even if that person cleaned it, I would clean it back again. So, but the other option could simply be, I'm gonna wear a mask when I go to the bathroom and I'm going to you know, use a little toilet paper to, to flush the, the handle. And um, um, you, that might be a time when you decide not to wash your hands when you walk out, if you're not gonna expose anybody, but you then the only other remaining time would be um, when you wash your hands. Maybe that's a great time for hand sanitizer, um, just to wash your hands that way. Um, so that's how I would approach kind of the bathroom with regard to when you need to go to the bathroom for a second versus when you need to do your, your daily, daily bathing kind of ritual. Um, I kind of split those apart. But if you're doing the daily bathing ritual, then you're going to have to wipe down every surface um, between people. And also, if you're sick family members in a room, you're going to manage that vent that's in the room a little bit, too. Just think now, like uh, for the air conditioning. Um, if you can try to close it as much as possible, things like that. Because I don't know, Greg, if you've thought, I, I've tried to ask myself and it's like, well, you know, in an apartment complex or other places like that where you're really stacked up, I think it's important to think about that, at least that aspect of it as well. Yeah, I'm so, I mean, like, that's interesting. I hadn't thought too much about that. I know that I've read and, and listened to the, the South Korean lectures um, where they say that they have, they have um, cultured the virus from ventilation. But I mean, I was thinking if the vent is positive pressure, meaning it's bringing air into the room, that's different than a vent that is um, the uh, return yeah. air. Well, yeah. So I would not put the sick person in a room that has the return air. That's like, right. that's a no brainer. Now I know in new houses, they have these, like their, their vents that, um, connect rooms to like equalize the pressure. And so um, I live in a really old house, so we don't have those. And every time you open up one door, kind of the other doors shift, but on a new house, they have those. I would close those, I would 100% close that off. Right. Uh, if a person's sick, because yeah, theoretically it could make its way. Yeah, a lot of the new, yeah, that's exactly right. Most rooms in a newer home have returned vents in every room. And so. Yeah, yeah um, so if it's, if it's the vent that's taking air out of the room, that's the one to be concerned about. Right. That's a good point. So can you elaborate on what you meant by apartments? Or I, I'm here in a condo building, um, 20 stories high, 100 units, and people stacked pretty close together. What was your concern about? Uh, I don't know how much air is shared uh, across units in the building. Well, I, I don't know if it, every unit, first of all, is going to be totally different. Um, you know, I don't know how they how they clean their air and things like that. I mean, as long as there there are systems, and I bet you they do it for liability purposes, especially the bigger places, you can actually uh, have like uh, various types of like UV light and things to help with that. But I I guess where I was getting at my thought process, and this is more of a question out like thinking out loud, is you know what is there. What kind of dynamic is there in New York City that's different than here? You know, just because there's a ton more density um, in terms of living. And I've always kind of wondered if maybe that has anything, if, if we all heard any kind of studies that have been done on, uh, have they been to be able to detect any of the virus in ventilation in, you know, hi highly dense uh, housing units, you know? I don't know. If, I haven't read anything or seen any studies that say uh, two apartments that are not connected, the virus is hopping from one to the other. So um, I think 
if I was in a, if I was in, in your place, Mark, the way I would think about it is my unit is the non-contaminated part. And then as soon as I walk out of the unit and I'm in a public space, now I'm in a contaminated part. So I wouldn't, if I was going on a walk and I was you, I would wear a mask as soon as I walked into the common area, went down the elevator. And then when I got outside, if you wanted to, you could take the mask off. Um, just keep in mind when you're taking that mask off, if you touch the front of it, you know, make sure to touch the side and like maybe hook it onto your, your clothing or something, because that's the, the, the most chance that you're going to get um, it, an infection as a medical care worker assuming you're you have adequate uh, safety equipment is when you're taking off the safety equipment so that's the same thing applies if you're wearing a mask the chance that you're going to be con contaminating yourself is when you take off the de the device or the equipment of some sort there was a uh, there was another question in, uh, in talking about workplaces in our office area and this could be at a hospital, this could be someplace where people are still coming into work. There are air conditioning vents directly above. Can the virus be spread from the circulating air that blows out? So I think you've sort of touched on this, but um, anything else you would add about that workplace environment? I mean, if someone coughed into the return vent directly, <laughs> you know, and then it went and spread around and yeah, but then again, you, get, you know, you're diffusing that virus, that viral load through an entire ventilation system. So I think that, I think to me, when I'm thinking about it, that to me is the answer is, it's a matter of not, can I detect one single virus in a, you know, ventilation system? It's what's the load of virus and does that meet the threshold to infect? And most of the time I would say probably not uh, because the bigger the complex, the less likely that you're gonna, first of all, have intake inside units. I don't know how they're designed, I'm not that kind of person, but. Maybe their intakes are not are, in, are not really in the units themselves. Maybe they're in the hallways or outside. I'm not sure. But then, um, yeah, even if someone managed to place a cough laden with virus right on the intake, it would still spread through the entire ventilation system. It doesn't divide on its own in that situation. It's not like your load goes up um, spontaneously. So it gets diffused over a large volume of air and space to where I don't even know if it would really do anything at that point. But yeah, I, I that's not an area I would focus on. I, I just don't think people are getting this from um, more direct type of contact versus mm -hmm. in the air. I mean, there's a lot right now on, you know, is it aerosolized or is it in droplets? And the way I'm describing this is whether it's aerosolized or in droplets to me is an academic question. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it's academic in that the the size of the particle is what defines whether it's considered aerosolized or whether it's considered droplet. And so the virus is just it's on some spectrum of like this is a really, you know, one to two micron, super tiny little, you know, ball of water or mucus with some virus versus, you know, this is several hundred microns big. And so I'm, I think the, the logical reason to, to be wearing a mask is because the most of the virus that's coming out of your body that you need to be worrying about is on the bigger particles versus the smaller particles. So even if one of those tiny little particles that almost weighed nothing were to get sucked into a ventilation system, um, the, the viral 
burden, the amount of virus that your individual body would see would be tiny relative to someone sneezing on you or coughing on you or, you know, the, the third thing there is talking. And we just, I think everyone now realizes that when you talk, there are little bits of droplets coming out of your mouth. And um, we were talking about it yesterday on our, on our stand-up meeting at the, in the afternoon, but who hasn't been talking to someone and a little piece of spit that the person's talking to you, like spittle, as they call it, kind of flies into your face. And then you're kind of like, oh my God, the person just spat on me. And you're like trying to figure out how you're going to wipe it off and whatnot. So um, that happens. And, and I think that's why you know, the plexiglass barriers are going up at grocery stores. Why the recommendation for wearing masks is, is because it's, it, it's just a, it's a probability thing. And we're just trying to decrease the probability versus um, it being a hundred percent or zero. And I guess the important like concept to think about here is it's a matter of load. Remember, it's not just one t single virus floats through the air, lands on your nose, and then now you have the virus. It's typically a load. It takes a certain amount. And that's, I, mean, I don't think any of us really know, but I mean, it's like I said, it's, you have enough, believe me, if someone coughs in your face, that's enough to get you sick. But there's another question here, very, very general, but what any precautions you need to take with with what? With what? With I'm pets. A, pets. Yeah, I'm, so we talked about that this morning in our in our standup. So, so this virus does not infect other organisms other than humans. So it's not like you can give um, COVID nineteen to your dog, and then your dog, you know, running through a COVID nineteen illness, and then seven days later can can encounter another person and then give it to them. So the virus is not going to replicate on or inside of your pet. The way I think of it though is, is if you have COVID-19, you put that virus on your dog, like you pet the dog or you give the dog a kiss or you rub your face in the dog. Then fairly soon after the dog goes and interacts with someone else, there is a theoretical I think probably more than a theoretical chance that you could give someone else the illness kind of using the dog as the, as the object that's transferring the virus. So, but if you were to give your dog love and then not, and you had COVID-19 and then not interact with your dog for three days, and then that dog were to interact with someone else, then the chance that that would spread the virus, I think is approaching zero. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think this is not the time when you're out for a walk to be interacting with, um, other people's dogs <laughs> and you shouldn't let them interact with your dog when right. you're out with the a walk. There's another question um talking about walking. Um I feel like I could do some activities safely, playing golf, hanging out with friends 10 feet apart, etc. Should I do those things now? I, I so I think there's gonna be a time when we can golf. I think if I think if a place if a golf course is preparing in the COVID era, then I think the answer is going to ultimately be yes. We actually have a blog post on it that hypothesizes a bunch of different things you could do that would decrease the amount of human interactions that we have. 
I think if you have a conscience at this point and, and you look at the stories coming out of New York and, and I mean, there's stories this morning literally where um, they have 500 people in a 200 person hospital that are patients there. They're putting patients in the lobbies. People are dying in the hallways. I mean, this is this is not a time when we need to worry about golfing, in my opinion. So I think during the dance, golf courses are going to reopen and they're going to say, if you want to walk and not use a cart or you're going to have one person on a cart and we're going to take off the poles and we're going to put the PVC pipe in there. And so it doesn't, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that we could imagine that would allow you to golf with a lot less interaction from human to human contact. Um, I, I, my personal opinion right now is this is not an appropriate time to, to be experimenting with those things. Um, but there was the one thought or the, the thing you're about hanging out with friends. Hanging out with friends. So I'll, I'll talk about that. And I'm, I, Mason, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about that. So we are going to experiment with that this weekend. We have a, a couple coming over. They are going to sit um, 10 feet apart in the driveway. Um, and uh, we are going to, there is no theoretical scientific reason that I could think of that if you don't get within 10 feet of somebody and you guys are just interacting um, and y'all aren't sharing. So they're bringing their own chairs. You're not giving them drinks. You're literally not having anything that you've touched, interact with that person and you're not touching. And they sit, let's say 10 feet away to be extra safe. Then I think that's a very appropriate thing to do. Um, someone sent me a video of, of kids trying to do this. And within 30 seconds of the video, the kid on one side of the street that's like four years old or five years old or something was on the other side of the street. So I just don't think you're going to be able to do this with small children. I think you're going to literally have more stress and aggravation with small children um, than you would by just simply trying to do something on, on Zoom. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that. I think also the other the other thing to think about is we the people that are coming to visit us um, are not high risk. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I, I don't consider I'm 45, so I don't are about to be 45. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly not 75 with medical conditions. So um, I think we're balancing the risk. But Mason, what are your thoughts about that? I have four kids. My oldest is six. My youngest is one. There's no way I could control them to not run immediately over and slobber over every single person that we're trying not to expose. So, I mean, it's a no brainer if you have kids. Um, the, yeah, if you're, if you're adults and, you know, there's, you know, two adults and then two adults on the other side of the street of the driveway, I think that's reasonable if you're, you know, doing everything that Greg was talking about. I mean, there's, just like kind of what he said, from what we know now about the virus, there's nothing to say that that's not allowed or that I don't see how that could do anything at all at this point. But um, if you have kids, I just definitely would not recommend it. And hey, I mean, even if you have a dog, like you pet your dog or whatever, then it runs over and wants yep. to be scratched by your friends across the street. That That's just as bad. Yeah, so we're, our plan is, and, and we've, we've already orchestrated this thought process with the friends coming over and kind of set the, we're going to keep our dogs inside. They're not bringing their dog. And so we're going to do this. Just what you have to keep in mind, it's kind of like soccer versus basketball, right? Um, you just need one goal in soccer to win the entire game. You know, you just need one defensive breakdown. So you only need one time that you all of a sudden 
kind of screw up where you could potentially create that interaction that could spread virus. So this is, I, to me, if you were doing this with multiple couples, I mean, that's like, that, that just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. So this, to me, feels like if you're going to try to do something like this, this is with, you know, one person and then one other person or a couple and a couple or something where it's like one isolation group and another isolation group. This isn't like, oh, we're going to have four isolation groups all come to a soccer field. And, you know, I mean, no, this is um, I think during the hammer phase, if, you, if you're going to try to do this, um, no pets, no kids. Um, you've got a plan. You're not sharing anything. The person can't come over and touch the mailbox. They can't touch your car when they're walking up. I mean, those are all things to consider while we're in this hammer phase. Okay, so we're getting we're we're at the top of the hour. Uh, maybe we'll just do uh, two more questions. One's about testing. One's about treatment, and then um, a wrap-up question. Have either of you been following the testing of potential? treatment drugs, there's different names being thrown around. How promising do these seem towards uh, treating COVID-19? Or how would we determine that as uh, the general public? Where, where, where do you, uh, what do you think are So, um, well, there, I think the two big ones that everybody's heard about um, are Plaquenil, which is chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, very similar to it. And then the other one is azithromycin, which is an antibiotic. Um, so, they're thinking that, uh, first of all, I'll just say there's not a double blind study with a, enough of a population to really take away anything. So everything that we've looked at has been what we call anecdotal, which means I had five patients that I treated with this and all five patients got off the ventilator or you know things like that. So you gotta have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I mean, so far, um, I think that the um, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, um, we'll see. I mean, just kind of, that's my approach is, uh, you got to realize about those, that medication in particular, it is not, it's not like we we're talking about with vitamin C where it's like, Hey, it's not going to hurt you. So what's the downside, uh, with chloroquine. I mean, that's a pretty potent medication that they stopped using for malaria <laughs> because it ended up, you know, their better medications came out, you know, that didn't have quite the side effect profile. So now they use it for like rheumatoid arthritis and stuff. I mean, so um, I would not go as cavalier with Plaquenil of, um, hey, I, you know, if your doctor is saying, I think you might have the virus and you're 35, let's just go ahead and treat you with Plaquenil. That's not the right decision. You know, this would be, uh, you know, you're really sick and we are really trying the best we can to keep you um, out of the hospital. Or if you're in the hospital, we're trying to keep you off of the ventilator then let's try this. You know, what do we have to lose? I think that's kind of how you approach it with Plaquenil as it stands right now. Um, the azithromycin component, um, there is an anti-inflammatory uh, side of it that they think it might be helpful. And then there's also the side that it prevents uh, pneumonia in an already compromised lung, uh, which is what we call a super infection. So a, ba um, a bacterial pneumonia, a secondary right, pneumonia. Right, 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 right. So, um, Anyway, I think that, you know, that's kind of how I'm understanding those two medications right now. Um, and then other, you know, I don't know, Greg, if, if you have anything you want to say about other uh, interventions. Yeah, I'll, I'll make two points to add to what you said. One, I certainly don't think this is going to be a silver bullet. I think if this was a silver bullet and, and took mortality 
from whatever is down to zero and um, someone came in real sick and you just gave them a, you know, you know, five or 10 days of this medication and, and you could discharge them. Um, I just, we're not going to find that. We would already found that. So this is maybe it takes, maybe it improves, improves your survival by, you know, 10 or 15 or 20%. To me, those things aren't going to change any of the way you should be interacting in the world during the hammer phase. Um, and then the second thing is, is we already have a, na a national shortage of those medications. So this is a situation where these medications are only going to be used in the sickest of the sick. And, and, and think about the logic of it. So if, if you have a really small chance of dying from something and you decrease that chance by 20%, doesn't really, really help you that much, right? But if you have a really high chance of dying from something, you know, your doctor is looking at you and, and you have an 80% mortality based on how sick you are and you can decrease that person 20%, well, that's pretty meaningful. I mean, that that's going to potentially help one in five really, really sick people. And so there's this concept of, you know, number needed to treat to save a life and a whole bunch of other things. I think the, the bottom line is, is I would put that in my brain as the entire healthcare community is thinking nonstop on how to um, improve the outcomes from this illness. These are a couple of things that they're trying, and these are appropriate for people that are being admitted to the hospital. And we have a national shortage of those medications. So if you have those medications, I would probably hold on to them. And if the um, if the your local uh, hospital says, hey, we're out of these medications, we want to collect them from the community, then that's when I would give them. I would definitely not take them if I started to have mild disease and um, and uh, wasn't under the care of a doctor or wasn't doing that in combination um, with the physician. Um, I think what's interesting and, and perhaps gonna ultimately be more promising, but this is just my blink on it, is the information coming out about um, convalescent serum. So we talked about antibodies before, but when you have the infection and you successfully um, recover from the infection, we, we now know that you will make antibodies, these kind of like these little key attachment things that can neutralize the virus. And so what they've done is they've, they've taken it out of people that have success, successfully recovered. They've taken out all the stuff from the blood that they don't need, and they basically just have those antibodies. Um, and then they inject those antibodies into a person that has the illness. And they just did the publishing of five patients that appear to do better. So again, Mason talked about, you know, randomized, double-blinded, placebo trials. That is the gold standard of the absolute best type of study that you can have that proves something is a benefit or not. And so this would be considered an observational study, which is the lowest quality kind of study that, that doctors use. And so there is, I mean, just in my 20-year career, there is just so many examples of things that we thought were really good and we started doing, and then they did a really good, high powerful, good quality study and it showed that it had either no effect or in, in some cases yeah. it actually um, was even worse. So- Best case um, of that is that aspirin study they just did that everybody thought, if I take an aspirin a day, it'll keep us from having a heart attack. And they did finally did a study on it and it turned out it not only didn't do it, it actually increased your risk of bleeding in your brain, so. Great, great example. So that's how I would process all that information. And then just, I think the 
the biggest information I had this this week was when I when I watched the the MRAP those those ER doctor um, generated and the intensivists and ER doctors were saying that this this illness is unlike any pneumonia type illness they've seen before. There is lots of things they're learning. They're changing their approach on when they people put people on ventilators and when they don't put people on ventilators. They're figuring out exactly. So we are going to learn a ton in the next couple months. And the longer we can let the medical community learn, I think the better off we are. We are crafty little organisms, and we will we will figure this out. We just need some time. Okay. The other question we have here, you'd mentioned antibodies. What What do you know about testing or the uh, testing that would detect antibodies? and that being available to the public. Other countries are starting to test to see who has already had it to enable some returning to work. This is maybe in the meantime, we're going from the hammer to the dance. Letting people go back to work is part of that dance phase, right? Um, well, I'd say that right now, we don't really know what to do with that. So let's just, I'm gonna create a scenario. So uh, let's say that uh, we're in the dance and you go get a test because you think you might've been sick a few, you know, six weeks ago, turns out you have antibodies, okay? Now, there are all different kinds of antibodies that this test could be looking at. You know, the little keys that he was, that Greg was talking about. You have some that are more permanent and that's called IgG. You have other ones that are right in the moment when you're infected or right after, it's IgM. And so, first of all, the, the first question you have to ask yourself is what kind of antibodies are we deciding are valuable to have? Probably IgG, you know? Um, and then, the second thing would be, what's the significance of having those antibodies? Do they actually prevent you from getting the uh, infection or not? And so when you are uh, going through all that, you have to really decide um, if it turns out there's a level, a threshold that you have to get to in order to have immunity, then that's called a quantitative analysis of that. And so we don't know if there's a certain level you have to get to in order to uh, reach immunity um, or is it just a qualitative you have it or you don't, you know. And so all that to say is um, right now there are tests. And in fact, I'm, I'm participating in a study out of California looking at that very thing. And that's great. But it's really meant I think the way I see these tests are more of data collection and interpreting that data rather than an absolute, I have antibodies, so I'm good, so I can go back to work. It's going to help us figure out what to do as a population more, I think, than an individual, at least in the short term. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Okay, so we've covered a lot of really, um, I think, useful tips and information for, for us in our everyday lives. And uh, well, thank you for doing that. Um, maybe it was the last question here that came in, um, kind of bringing it back to some of the bigger picture again. Um, does it appear like this challenge will end anytime soon? I mean, soon is a very relative term. So, um, obviously that's the $64,000 question. You know, no one knows how long we're going to be in in what phase. So I'll, I'll take a stab at this. Um, I have I've been telling folks and, and talking to folks that to me, the hammer phase is going to be measured in weeks. 
and the dance phase is going to be measured in months. Um, and when I say measured in weeks, I don't think this is a one to two week scenario. I think weeks might be, you know, four, eight, 12. It's going to be something in, in those terms. And then I think that restrictions are going to lift um, and, and we're going to be doing those things in the scale of months. So it might be might be that we need eight weeks to get a hold of our curve, or it might be that we need 12 weeks. Let's just pick eight weeks for just for conversational purposes. Um, and, and so we're at the end of May, and the, the, the curve isn't going up anymore straight up. The curve has started to, to look like Italy's curve. Um, I'm picking such a long time because of the, the lack of the hammer, just how tight the hammer has gone down. Um, has been a little more lenient than any other country out there. I mean, even Italy, once they started to lock down, it feels like all the stuff I'm reading, and, and, and we have uh, one of our um, customers is is based in Italy, and the type of stuff he's talking about, their lockdown is more severe than our lockdown. Um, I don't know what the lockdown looks like in, in New York other than what I'm reading. So if it's eight weeks of lockdown, then I think you're going to start getting this staged roll out of restrictions being lifted. And I think those will each stage of that will last a month or, or maybe two months. But I, I think that, that those will be focused on getting the economy going back again. So um, so if that's soon to you, then the answer is yes, that that's soon. If that feels like a really long time for you, then then the then that's going to be a really long time. Um, I think we need to get into a mindset that, and it's it's sometimes hard to understand. We are in a in a historic time. Um, there's literally only two other pandemics that are are in this um, um, classification. You know, the the Spanish flu in, in 1918, and then the the, the plague. Um, back in the, I think went from the 1400s to the 1700s, somewhere in that range. Um, and so we're not talking, this This isn't a MERS or a SARS or an H1N1. Those were all probably classified as pandemics. That, you know, I, I don't know, there were blips on my historical memory, but um, we, we just crossed a million people in the world, 50,000 deaths. And, and I mean, unfortunately, we're still at the beginning of this. So um, I was talking with my wife last night. I mean, this is, the, the prior most significant thing that's happened to humanity before this, in my opinion, is World War II. I mean, that's the level of the scale that we're talking about. Um, World War II was, uh, you know, a, a minimum of a six-year event, however you want to classify it. So um, I don't think this is going to be a six-year event for us. I think that um, it, we, will, we will be forever changed by it. Um, but I think that this hammer phase, like I said, is going to be measured in weeks not a low number, but a higher number. And then the dance is going to be measured in months. And um, probably the most realistic things that I've heard of is there's going to be some kind of dance between six to 18 months, something in that range. And um, we're going to be, re I guarantee you that people that are a lot smarter than than me are going to be reevaluating that on a day-by-day -day basis. And that's at that point, we're hoping that a vaccination is available to basically and then it, then it changes dynamic to penetration of that vaccination into a population response of a population to that vaccination and mutation of the virus to overcome that vaccination. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you. And um, I did put a link in the chat box if you want to grab it before we 
close down the webinar of that article, The Hammer and the Dance, if you want a deeper dive into that terminology uh, that's been used here today. So I want to thank everyone who attended and, and thank everyone who submitted questions, whether you attended live or submitted them in advance and you're watching um, a recording. Um, I want to thank our panelists here, Dr. Greg Jacobson, Dr. Mason Malore. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? I'll just end with um, the, the statement based on the observation that how we interpret this event, in my mind, has to do with perspective. And uh, there is zero question in my mind that, that there, there's going to be a ton of suffering and death. And um, there's really not much we can do about that. I mean, you know, that's viruses are part of the human condition. Um, I, I think we could focus on that and, and, and we will um, not be uh, better off as humans if, if that's all we're focusing on. Um, the amount of, of inspiration and hope in us coming together um, is going to be unparalleled that we're going to see. I saw a video on YouTube recently where someone had gone through the streets of Austin and just showed the lack of people on the streets. And uh, the statement was, I mean, it looks like the end of the world. And then, and then the interpretation that they concluded with is, no, this is not the end of the world. This is a, this is a sign of solidarity, human solidarity, to do the thing that we can do right now, which are, we've talked about during, during the last hour. And, and to me, the amount of hope that that fills me with and the amount of inspiration that that fills me with you know, hopefully, hopefully we will be better off as humans from this, um, from an emotional standpoint and how much we care about each other and um, how we can just, you know, maybe not be so divisive. Um, so that's, the, that's how I'm choosing to, um, that's how I'm choosing to, to interpret the, the events, uh, Mark. I, I was muted. Sorry, Mason, is there any final? Um, I feel the same way. I think that, uh, you know, my doctor hat is all about, you know, how do we minimize and mitigate and all that kind of stuff. My uh, human hat is saying that we um, really can make it through all of this. You know, we just have to uh, keep our heads. Well, thank you. Um, thank, thank you for that. Thank you for everything you've shared. Um, this was actually the second of these webinars that we've done. So you can find the recording of the first one from, that was, was that two weeks ago already? Feels like an eternity. Yeah. Um, that recording is still out there on YouTube and our podcast channel. And um, things are, are changing quickly. So I'm guessing another one of these might be, might be in the future. But um, please keep... Um, keep an eye on our uh, webinars webpage, connexus.com slash webinars, or if you subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our podcast, you'll be notified about new recordings as they come out. So uh, again, on behalf of the entire team at Connexus, on behalf of our panelists, Mason Miller and Greg Jacobson, I'm Mark Graven from Connexus. Thanks. Thanks for being here today.